They tried to stop my shine, but I said, hold up. Y'all know how many hoes done tried to hold this hoe up. Tokyo music. Say I'm bossed up. Miss Ross up. Say said I'm bossed up. Miss Ross up. <laughs> What's up, y'all? What's up, y'all? What's up, y'all? What's up? Last week of March. What's up? What's up? Hey, y'all. Welcome to Craig's Pop Life, a black gay excursion into pop culture. I am your host, uh, Craig Seymour. You know me. I'm a veteran music journalist, been in this game for more than 20 years. You can check out my writings and such at rnbeing.com. Or you could go, I wish I could say you could go to a bookstore, but ain't no bookstores really around anymore. See, so you can go, you can go browsing on the Amazon, right? Go browsing on the Amazon, look some of my books. You can get my biography that I wrote, um, Luther, The Life and Longing of Luther Vandross. Uh, you can get my memoir about being a stripper hoe in grad school called All I Could Bear, My Life in the Strip Clubs of Gay Washington, D.C. Get yourself a little historical context with your booty. And um, you can also get my novel, Who's Your Daddy? About three generations of black gay men looking for love. And I also need to say that all the books are also available on um, Audible. I read um, my memoir and I read... Um, my novel, but there's an excellent vocalist, one of those guys that has one of the smooth radio-type voices, does the Luther Vandross book, because I felt like, don't nobody want to hear about Luther's story, but, you know, from my wild ass, they didn't want, you know, like Luther, back in the days, like in the 80s, when his music was really popping, you had them um, really smooth, Donnie Simpson, Melvin Lindsay-type voices, so I wanted a voice like that, and I got one, um, and just so you know, I own the rights to all my own shit now, I mean, they were initially published by mainstream publishers, but I got them rights back. So if you support a Craig Seymour book, a sort of port, a Craig Seymour audiobook or something like that, you are supporting Craig Seymour, okay? You are supporting a black business. And, you know, that's what I'm all about, black creative entrepreneurship, owning our own stuff, creating our own stuff. And so, you know, that's just the facts um, of the situation. It's not to say that I'm not going to work with a major company again or something like that for specific reasons, but it's always to say that ownership is always in my sights. So something you should know, maybe you care, maybe you don't. Um so what are we talking about this week? Um, you might have seen me on this week's autopsy, The Last Days of Left Eye. If y'all got reels, which to be honest, I don't really know anybody that has reels other than people with direct TV. Like I finally cut the cord and I was a cable diehard. Like I just, I, you know, I had spent too many years as like a preteen waiting for, remember when you had to wait for cable to come to your town and other towns be having cable, but your town wasn't hooked up and you kind of had to be waiting and waiting and waiting. And I just felt like I was betraying the young, I don't even know what age I was, maybe 12 or something like that, person that was like, couldn't get MTV when they did the Prince Purple Rain party and had to watch it at a cousin's house and just all sorts of stuff like that. So I was very, you know, not wanting to cut the cord. But finally, they hit me with this bill that was like 300 something. I said, 
Sometimes that's the way it is with businesses, right? Like with phones and all sorts of things. It's like you may not want to do it, but then you get that high bill and you get something out. You know, because to me, like I thought cable companies were trying to keep people, but then they raised my rates talking about, oh, are you on a three-year promotion? The fuck is a three-year promotion? Who knows that you're on a three and then they don't give you no no warning that the promotions are up and they just hit you with them. You know, I open that bill and say, wow, I must be six months late or something. I mean, not that many, but you know the thing. So I just had to get rid of them. So then I thought I had to go with the satellite situation, right? It gave me a direct TV satellite. But this guy came to hook up my satellite and he was like, you know, you don't need a satellite, right? And I was like, what you talking about? So I have it now. I have this service, Direct TV Now, or something, where I get all the channels. It's all through my um, internet, and I get all the channels and everything. I can watch it on my screens. I can watch it at home. So anyway, all that to say is I have reels that way. But I don't know. I, my mama don't have reels. I don't know anybody else with reels. But in any event, last Sunday, reels did. They have a show called Autopsy, which deals with the last days of a celebrity's death. And they really go into it. They're reading the actual autopsy and talking about the cause of death. It's not the type of show that I would normally watch. I'm not a forensic files person. I, I, I just don't really care about any of that kind of stuff. But, you know, I was contacted by the producers last year. And I had written a cover story on um, Left Eye, and I'd spend a lot of time with her. So I felt, you know, fairly um, knowledgeable about speaking about her. And it was like an all-day interview. You know, I talked about everything. I talked about how she got her name, Left Eye, from Michael Bivens. Um, I talked about her creative role in TLC, where it's like every album, every creative idea that TLC had always came from Lisa. But the problem is... Lisa would then have another idea and then she'd be mad that you preferred her previous idea and you weren't seeing this next idea she had. And like they were all her ideas, but she'd get tight because you didn't want to change everything that already been set up in place because she had a new idea. And so, you know, that's just sometimes the way it is with creative personalities. So um, I talked a whole, whole lot, but, you know, in the interview with the producer, but um not much was used in that, and I think that's wise because when they interviewed me, I don't think that Lisa's brother and sister had signed on to participate. But I, evidently, because they're in the um, episode a lot, they evidently had signed on. So it's like, of course, why do you want to hear me talk about Lisa's life when you can hear her brother and sister talk about Lisa's life? So I thought that was very appropriate. And, um, you know, it is what it is. But... um Watching the episode though, like if you can find it on, maybe if you have, we one of the few like me that actually have reels, or if you can find it, you know, on some of the net somewhere, is I was really surprised by some of the new info about the cause of death at the very end. You know, I'm watching it like, where am I? Where am I? Where am I? But then at the end, I'm like, wow, I didn't know this. This is actually interesting. So, for what it's worth, there's that. And um, I'll be in a Luther Vandross episode of the show in the very near future. So, I'll keep you up to date with that. Um, but it seems like this week I've been missing birthdays of celebrities and all sorts of anniversaries. Like, it's the anniversary of one of my favorite albums, Jody Watley's Larger Than Life. And then... Um, you know, there's Diana Ross's 75th birthday. And I don't know where y'all be finding these dates and getting this information. I mean, please clue me in, you know, but I'm not interested in Ariel, buddy. I, like, 
point me to the black shit, you know, about these album anniversaries and these birthdays. Like, I just don't know where people be getting them from. Because I'd be, like, seeing stuff on, like, is there a database? Is it, Do you need a password? Is it fingerprint? You know, retina scan? Where are y'all getting this database of all these dates, all these single anniversaries, album anniversaries, you know, video anniversary, just all this kind of stuff. I would really love to know because I would li- ideally like to talk about the shit in advance, but, you know, as it is, I just play catch up. So this week, you know, we finally celebrated the 75th birthday of Diana Ross. You know, of course, she used this year's whole Grammy Awards as almost like a trailer for the main event of her actual birthday. And um, so A couple of people um, have asked some of my Diana Ross opinions, and I'll definitely get to that. But the question that I've had, you know, a question I have now and the question that I've had for years, like when I saw her at Essence a few years ago, is I'm trying to find out when did black folk as a whole begin to unapologetically embrace Diana Ross? Because as a child growing up in the 70s, Diana Ross was a very, very controversial figure, especially in mixed black company. Like, you weren't going to bring up Diana Ross at the barbecue or at Thanksgiving dinner. You know, it's just she was controversial. And, you know, more than one time, more than 10 times, more than 20 times, the word B was associated with her name whenever her name was um, was brought up. because. Black folks had a number of beefs, which I will try to summarize. Um, There was just her, just in general, even poor Florence Ballard, you know, that whole thing, and then becoming Diana Ross and the Supremes, and then Florence dying penniless, and then apparently she showed up and showed out at Florence's funeral, crying and carrying on, so that was a big um, strike against her. And then, I don't know if this is an urban myth or something, because I can't find it on YouTube, but there was always this um, sort of, that people would always talk about one appearance she made on The Tonight Show. And she talked about her white husband, who I guess is Tracy's dad. And she said, oh, yeah, she wanted to marry a white man because that way they'll have good hair or some kind of wild nonsense like that. So th- that was another thing that, you know, folks just wasn't having. I would like to know if that's true and if that clip is out there. And then people were mad at her fucking up Billie Holiday's story and Lady Sings the Blues. I mean, a lot of people thought it was a good story. It just wasn't Billie's story. You know, plus, it's not like she looked anything like Billy. I mean, Billy was a thick woman for most of her life. I mean, she got very thin toward the end of life, but Billy would be, oh, Billy has something. She had body, you know, and Diana is like a stick figure, you know, in the best way. And then, plus, she didn't sound like Billy. I mean, she sounds like Diana Ross singing some Billy Holiday songs, but she don't sound like Billy Holiday. Isn't that what's about biopic is supposed to be about? So people were just not feeling that either, you know, like they felt like she hijacked Billie Holiday's story just because she wanted to make a dramatic story, not because she was trying to um, do service to the memory of Billie Holiday. And then people got mad because she done hijacked The Wiz, you know, the beloved Broadway play that, you know, I can't tell you how many school trips, church trips and whatever I took from D.C. to um, New York just to hear Stephanie Mills sing home. I mean, that was the thing. But, um, you know, 
Diana took the Wiz movie from age-appropriate Stephanie Mills, singing-ass Stephanie Mills, and had to revamp the whole damn thing to be about a timid, middle-aged school mom. So people were just like, her ego is just out of control. She's just running amok through black popular entertainment, and we've just had enough. And, um... You know, I think, but what it also was, and why people had so much, and we're talking about, there was a lot of animosity and just anger toward her. And I think about, like, my parents' generation, you know, they were the first to kind of post-civil rights, so they had opportunities, you know, jobs in these white institutions, and they're trying to navigate these white institutions in the best way they know how. And then, of course, you know, there's going to be somebody on the job running behind the white people, kissing all up to the white people, and selling other black people out in order to get ahead. And I think in a lot of ways, Diana Ross, fairly unfairly, came to occupy, you know, she became a symbol of that type of person. So, um, so you know, so, I, but, so it's just very interesting to me when she kind of just, we brought her back into the fold. And I think it's just a matter of, you know, if you stay along, if you stay around long enough and you sort of, um, you know, basically just fabulously survive, you know what I mean? You just survive in a way that, you survive in a way that your survival actually becomes um, inspirational to people regardless of what, you may have done to survive. You know, you're, you are a glorious survivor. And I think people just respect that. People respect the history and they are less likely to look at these, you know, the little things that people had beef with just seems small. Who cares, if, you know, um, you know, with, if she did, if she had ego, I mean, because we now realize if she hadn't had that ego, well, then maybe she wouldn't appear being able to clear a path for the Donna Summers and the Janets and the Beyonce's and everything like that. I mean, maybe she had to be that one in order to get people to take her seriously and get people to take a black woman seriously. Like they took all the Barbara Streisands and stuff. Maybe that's why she had to make people call her Miss Ross. I mean, so there's a lot to that. And I think we understand that a little bit more historically. So, um, you know, I love that people love Diana. I've always loved Diana. One of my, um, one of the very few things that I still hold against my mother is that she um, did not take me to this one Diana Ross concert that I wanted to go to, but she went with you know some of her adult friends, whatever. And it was the one where she had like a helicopter, I think, land on stage or something like that. And she did bring me back the tour book, which was beautiful and everything like that. But still. I should have been there, you know, and I will go to my grave feeling tight about that. So let's get into my Diana Top 10, which I will put on the blog, craigspoplife.com. Um, of course, these things don't always change, but I'm just a list boy. I like making lists. So um, well, let me go um, from the bottom, you know, because I like drama. I like lists and I like drama. So coming in at number nine, we have the extended alternate version of Love Hangover. Now, this is a version that I didn't really know about until the Diana remix album. And Frankie Knuckles did one of the Love Hangover remixes, and he used all these vocals. And I'm like, where are they coming from? I ain't never heard these vocals before. 
And come to find out, they were from this alternative version. I just love the background. It, it changes the song to me so much. It's like, it's, it's more... It's more driving, like, you know, they're like, sweet, 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 sweet. Like, it, it's just, I don't know, it just, it's even more sexual tension to it um, for me. So that's a number 10. Number, uh, yeah, so, t- child, I need to go back to elementary school to learn to count. Number nine is Say We Can from Working Overtime, which so many people overlooked. And, you know, this is one of those things that she got kind of, it was unfair, but when she was talking about the album to Barbara Walters, Barbara Walters was asking her what the sound was like. And she was like, well, the kids call it house and hip hop, you know. So everybody thought that was the wackest thing that you could possibly say. The problem was this, the album really is an authentic expression of of house and hip hop at the time, of the New Jack Swing at the time. And a really wonderful expression of that, you know, it's produced by Nile Rodgers. Um, working overtime is a jam. Um, you know, Rosie Perez is all in the video um, teaching Diana Ross how to dance. And it was like, it was one of the very few attempts of the older generation to try to bridge with the younger generation of R&B. But because it was so rejected, almost nobody tried it again. And that's where we created this huge generation gap in R&B that occurred during the 90s. But Diana Ross was out there in her cutoff jeans and stuff at some kind of club doing it, keeping up with Rosie and everything. She was trying because she it, it was important to her and she had always kept up with the trends. Do you know what I mean? And um, so I just think that's a, Working Under Time is just a fantastic record. If you haven't heard it, uh, just listen to the album and it's extra bonus points. Um, find the Blaze house mix of Working Overtime. Not just the Blaze mix, but the Blaze house mix of Working Overtime um, is fantastic. And also the song Paradise, if you can find the dub version of Paradise that actually has snippets of the boss in it, that's really hot too. But the song that I really like off of it is called Say We Can. It's just a really, you know, I think Diana Ross just has that voice. You know, it's not a gospel voice in any way, but for some reason I do find her voice inspirational. Like she can, she it's galvanizing. It's kind of like a... I don't know, sort of like a universal, she, she really can make these kind of broad, sell these broad sentiments and make you feel like getting along, getting on with it, you know? And so Say We Can, that's just, when I need to feel pumped up, I always play that record. Um, then number eight is the long version of Swept Away, which could also, I love the dub version too. That song is, you know, it's the 80s, it's the mid-80s, hip-hop, the kind of hip-hop of like, Africa Bambata and people like that is going on, but you also have kind of like on the pop tip Hall and Oates. So you have this record where Daryl Hall wrote and produced it, but Arthur Baker, who was known for his work with Africa Bambata and um, So Sonic Force and Planet Patrol and people like that, and records like Looking for the Perfect Beat and everything, he mixed it. So it's just this great clash of like modern pop and like, you know, futuristic hip hop and everything and it's just you know it's funny it's such a visual record to me just listening to the 12 inch version is a visual experience to me it's like i see her as like storm and the x-men or something just this superhero like performing through the song in a way that the video could never compete like the video means nothing to me i i can't even remember it. but just closing my eyes and visualizing that record i see her like fierce like storm you know mohawk storm just 
doing something, but just, you know, it's, it's just that, that, that feeling. So I love that record. That's her superhero record for me. And then at number seven is Telephone. Um, from that was from Red Hot Rhythm and Blues, I believe. No, what was, what was Telephone from? No, Telephone was from Swept Away too. That's Bernard Edwards, you know, just, just um, I love Nile. I love the attention that Nile's gotten and everything like that. But Bernard Edwards produced some fantastic records in the 80s. Records like um, Jody Watley's Love Injection and um, Telephone. It's just, he just knew a groove. You know, and he could just get in there and get that groove and just change the groove slightly and just change the melody again and just keep you going back to that groove. And Telephone is just like that to me. Telephone is just, you know, like a mid-tempo groove and it just keeps working a groove. It's like how deep can you get into a groove? So I love that record. Um, coming in at number, Lord, I done lost count. One, two, three, four, five, six. Coming in at number six is Muscles by... Um, muscles that which michael jackson did and i just love that record for the futuristic minimalist production i wish he had brought some of that to his own work especially toward the later years i wish he could have remembered that minimalist kind of electro aesthetic of muscles because i think that would have served him well where toward the end of his career and even bad era and everything like that you know with the exception of songs like Remember the Time and Butterflies, you know, it was always about more production, more production, more production, more production. It's like he wanted to outproduce, outdo the amount of production on Janet's records. Even after she stripped everything down, he just wanted production and production and production. So I think that was one of um, Michael's best production moments. Um, at number five, no? I don't know, one, two, three, four, five. Yeah, number five, number five. No one gets the prize. Um, just one of those excellent Ashford and Simpson joints. You know, I think Diana Ross is a I, I think Diana Ross is a really good actress. I really enjoyed her in certain things. I can't remember what would be a fave. I haven't liked her in that movie with um with Brandy. And is that the same movie or a different movie than the one where she's like a schizophrenic or something? Either way, but she's I, I She's, you know, she can act, but she also can really t use her acting abilities to tell a story in a song. And um, I think No One Gets the Prize is a really good storytelling song. And it's done by Ashford and Simpson, so that's great. And number four is Have Fun Again from the Diana album, which gave us the hits like I'm Coming Out and Upside Down and uh, my old piano. But something like Have Fun Again is just so celebratory to me. And not that, well, it's been decades though, but when they finally, you know, when Nal Rogers and Bernard first turned in that album, nobody liked it. Nobody thought it would be a hit. They thought it was too minimal. They So Motown kind of re-edited it and kind of remastered and did all sorts of stuff to it. Well, when they did the reissue of it, they finally released the original Chic mixes, which were just much more stripped and funky and just you know and just the guitar and the bass would just bang it like like chic records you know and so um have fun again it's just my favorite of those of those records that you know were released with the original chic versions i just think it's just it just slaps um at number three come see about me the supremes 
You know, I don't even know. I mean, Tyna Ross's vocals is so sparkly and so seductive on that. But without those subtle vocals by um, Mary and Florence, like, I don't know if I like the, you know, I, I think it's just the both of it. Like, I, w- I would not like the record without their vocals and something about just sort of like low-key nature of their background vocals makes Diana um, stand out. And it's it's just, I think, a perfect record of what, because it's kind of early in their careers, but it's a perfect record of what they would become. Whereas, you know, at their best, Mary and Florence or Cindy um, enhanced what Diana was doing. And they, you know, made her shine, but their contributions were so noteworthy because they provided the context to really make her shine. And I think those were some of the best um, Supremes records. Um, And then number two is when the love lights start shining through um, his eyes, which I think might have been their first single or one of their first singles. It was definitely a flop. But I just love, that is a punk song to me. I just love that punk energy there. You know, it's just, they're like Florence and Mary, like screaming, like, you know, they're in a girl gang or something. And just the beat is just unrelenting. And they just sound so young and just so tough and so hungry. And so I just love that. Right? that that's like a fight song to me. I want to like punch something or something when I hear that song. I just love it. And then, of course, at number one is the boss. Um just says so much about black music at that time, you know, in terms of Ashford and Simpson's aesthetic and um, them having come up through the church and, but them to be able to use that kind of traditional form of black music, which can actually be from a very conservative part of the black community in the efforts of these really of these feminist anthems of the time, you know, that are grounded in this music that comes from the old fashioned church, you know, and I think this epitomizes it, especially in her release, you know, on the 12 inch version, just with, you know, when she's doing that, ooh, ah, ooh, ah, you know, that's such an ecstatic release. And you really feel like, you know, she's, accepting the fact that she's not in always going to be in control and that's freeing rather than feeling constricting you know what i mean which which i mean that often comes with a kind of convergence or a kind of epiphany or a kind of realization it's like just the understanding of a situation can make you feel free from it because um you're no longer caught in that cycle of trying to figure it out and so i just love that and also uh, going back to like use this using this form for you know feminist statements like when they did you know i'm every woman for shaka it was all this time period where they were just doing these incredible records and i think that um that was incredible for all those reasons i said but also it really does set up who diana ultimately became and ultimately is to this day she is the boss you know and because she said that she's the boss you know Beyonce can say that she's the boss and Rihanna can say that she's the boss 
that was um, just such an important statement for women in R&B and women who were black women who wanted a larger stage than just R&B music that wanted to take their music and, you know, bring it to a larger pop audience. That took a lot of bossiness, not bossiness, like being bossy, but that took being bossed up and, um, you know, Diana did it. So all praises to Ms. Ross. Um, now, moving on to just something that I'm, um, a song that I love this week. And this just gives you a little bit of context. I mean, I will always ride for house music. Okay, house music is so essential to my identity as a black gay man because as I was coming out, that was the soundtrack. The, uh, the gathering places, the everything, the songs people were talking about, like no matter what was the hits or whatever going on, it's like I feel among the black gay men within my circle, we could always talk about these club records and, and like, and that, and you could almost talk about club records with somebody and that would be a way of you knowing that they were in the life or they were one of the children, you know, so I will always ride for house music, not this crazy, you know, electro Euro shit. I'm talking about house music, music that has some, you know, churchy pianos in it and everything like that. And so one of my favorite, um, Collectives that make house music and still do it. They're the Basement Boys and their affiliates like DJ Spin. So I'm always keeping an ear out for what they are doing. And um, they dropped this thing. I guess it dropped in January, but I ain't know. But it's a cover of um, LaBelle's Isn't It a Shame done with vocalist Tracy Hamlin, who's from Baltimore. Um, and you know, sis, apparently, I just researched, she's, like, can do classical music and singing French, German, and Italian, and the whole nine. And she's the vocalist behind one of my all-time favorite club records, um, Time and Time Again by Sublevel. I'll put it on my, um, I'll put it on my blog. But in any event, she's come back with this cover of LaBelle's definitive ballad from Chameleon, um, Isn't It a Shame? And, you know, it's, time out but i was yesterday years old when i found out that isn't it a shame wasn't written by nona in them it was actually done by some white man named randy edelman and i'll put this on my blog blog too but you listen that you will have no idea that it was the same song like it doesn't sound anything like the sort of um sort of emotional you know play that Patty turns that into the emotional performance that Patty turns that into. Um, and, you know, the thing about it with LaBelle's version and with Tracy's, you get that feeling that you get a lot of times with um, black music is that things also mean, things can mean two different things at the same time. Like you have the level that it's a love song. It's like, isn't it a shame that such a love must end? Oh, you know, <laughs> you have it on that level. But also just like, 
isn't it a shame? Like, isn't it a shame? Isn't it a shame how we have been treated, how we as black people have been treated in this country? You know, you hear that extra meaning in the call and response background vocals that almost sound like battle cries. You hear it when Patty loses language altogether and she says, you know, that is just loses language to the point of the moans. That's about more than just that love. That's about the conditions that that's 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 like existential that's about the conditions that she's in in this society you know um and the way to hear and tracy does it like she rides the beat like she's leaving one situation for a better place and you know she's sad for sure but she's known trouble before and she knows that you know this one ain't gonna take her out but just the fact that she has to deal with some same old shit again, it's like, whether it's a man or the man, isn't it a fucking shame? Isn't it a shame? Once again, isn't it a shame? How many times have you thought that in life, just going through life as a black person, as a black gay person, or just whatever um, you go through, but just going through shit, isn't it a shame? Because, you know, and especially with black people, it's like, your interpersonal relationship may be going bad and you have to deal with racism. You know, the car may be broken and you have to deal with racism. You know, it's like everything is compounded by some level of racism. And, you know, sometimes it's like, isn't it? Yes, it's a fucking shame. Isn't it a shame? It's a rhetorical question. Yes, motherfucker, it's a shame. So, um, you know, I love it. So check out um, Tracy Hamilton, ha- Hamlin's rather. Isn't it a shame? I'll put it on the blog, but you can also just search for it on um, on all the streaming sites. I hope I've been calling the child Tracy Hamlin because it would be a mess if I've been calling her Tracy Hamilton this whole time. But Tracy Hamlin, and she's a wonderful vocalist. And check that out and check out Time and Time Again by Sublevel. So moving on to the movies, you know, last week I did Us, and I didn't want to spoil anything, so I I was kind of generic, and this week I don't want to spoil anything either, Um, but I do feel like some of these theories that have been circulating around the Twitter sphere and stuff like that have been kind of irritating me to a little bit to where I feel like I do need to speak on something that I don't think will ruin anything, but it just, it's, it's bothers me because, um, there's this theory that the, the the film kind of works upon the metaphor of like, or kind of works upon the idea that in order for there to be haves, there have to be a subclass of have-nots. And I get that. I get that. I get how that can link to like the prison industrial system and all sorts of things in our society, right? How just the... Um, just the distribution, the um, disproportionate distribution of wealth kind of speaks to all that. But my issue with us, if us is really trying to address that, is why is it using a middle class black family who's just lucky enough to have a rundown 70s ass looking beach house as an example of a quote unquote have? I mean, they're just sitting there minding their business. Why are they the subject of such a deep sci-fi critique like that seems to be a little misplaced and um i mean have black folks advanced so much on the socioeconomic scale that we deserve for like 
sci-fi people freaks to be taking us down and you know like our our, our black middle class people truly the problem in society that is holding other people back or that is oppressing other people that seems to be the message from all that you know like the jordan peels are saying and just what i've been reading on the on black taking one grad class twitter you know so that's bugging me that's actually making the more jordan peel and more i hear folks talk like that the less i even like the film but you know go see it for yourself Uh, support black films always and now this is my last I, you know i've been having all these kind of like you know netflix recommendations that i was like you know i saw the movie and it was cool you know it's nice like would i have left my house for it no would i have invited people over to see it no would i have popped actual popcorn on the stove as opposed to just throwing in an 100 calorie bag in the microwave no but having watched it i found it enjoyable and in this week it was that motley crew biopic the dirt now yes most of it for me watching initially had to do with machine gun kelly being in it i've had a crush on him since the mixtape days his wild boys remix video is definitely fat material for me so you know i thought i would check it out but i truly found it enjoyable um especially if you like me are just into the music um biopic genre in general and you know this is coming from somebody that don't give a fuck about motley crew or heavy metal in general like i even skip black cat like i just don't even care to hear all them guitars and all that loudness and all that wailing and all that uh, uh, uh. um only heavy metal i ever fucked with was appetite for destruction by guns and roses and that was the beginning and the end of it but watching this movie, watching The Dirt, you know, I actually thought the characters were interesting and much more, they were much more individuals than I thought. You know, I'm just assuming they were just a bunch of wild, crazy white party boys and who cares. But, you know, each one really went through some significant struggles and some, went through some growth. So I was like, oh, come on, white boys, you know, serve the drama, serve the melodrama. So I was there for it. So, I mean, I recommend it if you're sitting at home, you know, maybe folding laundry, maybe you clean the house, you know, it's Sunday afternoon. Maybe you just don't want to get up at the motherfucking couch and you just have the remote in your hand and Netflix is asking if you're still watching and you just want to say, yes, bitch, turn on the dirt. It's that kind of movie. It's that kind of movie that you will half watch, maybe start or watch being not that into it. And I think you really end up finding yourself getting pulled into it and ultimately thinking that it was an enjoyable experience. So that is my um, recommendations. Those are my recommendations for this week. And what I have to ask if you all would do me a favor, um, at this point, you know, I'm on the good iTunes now, so it really, really, really helps if you um, rate the podcast and subscribe to it on iTunes, and also if you tell a friend about it. That really, um, that really helps me out a lot. And a little bit of news now, because I'm... Um, kind of still working on the final final touches of my um, Janet Jackson book, I'm going to be taking next week off because I'm traveling and I'm doing the book and it's just going to be kind of crazy. But I'll definitely be back the following week. I hope y'all miss me because I will miss you because I really enjoy um, talking to y'all each week. So um, definitely. But until then, you know, as it always goes, sorry, I hit the mic. Be cool. Be kind, be creative, 
And in the words of my fave. Be your damn self. <laughs> All right, y'all. Love y'all. And I'll see you week after next. All right. Bye.